This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. All right, I think we're live. Yeah, we're live. (laughs) Yay. Yay. Hey, folks, uh, I think we have one or two people in the room. Yeah, let's go ahead and do the questions. And then if we have time, we'll give people an update on what we've been working on lately. Because I've got three questions. I think one or two of these are going to take us a little while to answer, though. So the first one is, sorry if it's already been answered in one of the previous episodes of the show. That's okay. How do I get good freelancing gigs online knowing that the last few years I worked exclusively on desktop apps and only converted to web development a few months ago, which is why my portfolio only consists of toy projects to apply what I've learned from my studies. I think I'm getting good at JS dev, backend and frontend, but it seems that every gig I see online, freelancing platforms require somebody that's already worked on a few real world projects. I would really appreciate your answer. It's a sort of classic, how do I bootstrap my way into either freelancing at all or better freelancing yeah. gigs, right? So what, what's your take on that, Chuck? I, I think I've so, got a few things too, but curious what your take is. I mean, there are a couple of things here. One is, is okay, you've transitioned from desktop apps to web apps. So, I mean, you still have whatever experience you have programming in general. So it's not like you've got no experience to speak of whatsoever. The other thing is, is that, again, we've, we've talked about this a bunch on the show, where the focus around web development, focus around I can solve your problem and finding that niche, which is what uh, Philip talks about a lot. And Jonathan then talks about, you know, basically moving that into finding an expensive problem and solving it, just providing value and then bidding according to that value. So I, I think it, there's a lot tied up in that. But yeah, essentially what it boils down to for me is instead of focusing on hourly dev work, you know, go out and solve a problem really well or find a platform that you can work in and work in that platform and own that space and stake out your ground. And then from there, you should be able to find clients. And then it doesn't matter if you've got a long resume or a short resume. Instead, what you're doing is you're speaking to them directly about the problems they have and the, pro- and the way you can solve it. And if you're doing that, a lot of times, you know, they, they may ask for a resume or ask what your experience is. But for the most part, if you're, if you're speaking to their problem and you can articulate a solution that they believe you can implement, it won't even matter. What's your take on it, Philip? Well, yeah, like, like I mentioned, this, is, this question comes up in a number of different contexts. One of which is, you know, I'm brand new to freelancing. How do I get started? The other is... I want to level up basically. And I think the challenges are the same in both cases. Like I know what it's like to be in this situation because what you're probably doing is sort of focused on how different at the technical level, creating a a desktop app is from creating a web app. And I'm not saying, Oh, it's all in your head, (laughs) but I think there's some ways to work around your perception of the difference. So the first thing to do is to try to, as much as possible, kind of get into the mindset of the person who would be hiring you for the gig that you're applying for. 
one way you can sort of differentiate yourself from other people who may have more experience than you is to ask better questions. So during your communication, uh, if you're, you know, replying to a job board, one of the ways I think you can differentiate yourself is by not just saying, well, here's my experience. I'd be happy to work on this. And then some people will even go so far as to throw out an hour, you know, a rate, like an hourly rate or some other rate. And maybe, I mean, I'm pretty sure I've done this in the past. You, you say really stuff that comes back to bite you later. And then you say things like, well, I think I could do this for $1,000 or this looks like $3,000 minimum. Or you start talking about price before you've talked about m- much more fundamental parts of, of the problem. So I would say the first thing you could do is ask better questions than a lot of your competition is going to be doing. Because a lot of your competition is going to be doing that stuff that I said is a bad idea. like talking about rate or prematurely estimating the project or stuff like that. So I would, I would try to ask better questions, more insightful questions. Those usually begin with the word why. <laughs> so can you tell me why are you, you know, uh, wanting to build this or why do you like Angular plus whatever is the, the way you want to approach this? Not that you should outright challenge people right off the bat, but at some point you can start to probe a little deeper than then your competition is going to, and that, uh, for the right kind of client, the kind of client you want to work with, that's going to immediately differentiate yours from a lot of other people. Two other things I would suggest are look at whatever could function as proof that you're reliable, that you can reduce risk on this project. And to be sure, your technical skills are one of those things that's, that serve as proof. but the other is the fact that you've worked for other clients in the past. So if you can get testimonials from them and sort of remove or tone down the references to the specific desktop technology and accentuate the other stuff, I think that's going to help. So really try to kind of uh, abstract away the parts of your, your proof that are specific to desktop stuff so that it can be more kind of general purpose proof that you're reliable that you uh, know how to achieve business goals, that you know how to have a project happen on time, you know how to stay on track and stay on budget and all that stuff that at, at kind of a beginner and intermediate freelancing stage, those things are really important. Those are taken for granted at, at the more advanced stages of a freelancer's career, but at the beginning and middle, those still are pretty important to explicitly talk about how you keep a project on budget, yada, yada. And then finally, I would just look for maybe some hidden opportunities where your existing experience is uh, a benefit. For example, I know that, well, (laughs) I know that anytime Apple releases desktop software, a couple weeks after the major release comes a minor release with all the bug fixes. So you might talk about how, you know, your experience in the desktop world has given you experience in, you know, shipping bug-free software. Not that there isn't any such thing as totally bug-free software, but you know what I mean. Like, what are the what are the highlights of, of your experience in that domain of desktop software that might be advantages in the world of uh, web software? That'd be my third tip for you is, is look for those advantages that may not be quite so self-evident until you look a little bit through your experience and think about it more broadly. One other thing I want to just jump in on here is that it says that this person is looking on online freelancing platforms. In other words, it, it kind of feels like you're looking on job boards 
And if you can get referrals instead, you know, so even if you're, if you've been a desktop programmer in the past and you've kind of picked up web development now, you probably still know people that know people that need your help. And so I would also be looking at your network and trying to find ways to get those people to come in that way. And that way, instead of you being a stranger saying, hey, come work with me, let's spend a bunch of time together figuring this stuff out. It's, hey, I'm a person who knows your friend or your friend knows and trusts me. And then you can come in with a little bit more authority and a little bit uh, better positioning that way. Yeah, I agree completely with that. And, and that, I think you, you, you'll have better luck with that kind of thing if you're more specific. So rather than saying, hey, do you know anybody who has, you know, <laughs> web work? Mm -hmm. If you can make it a little more specific, and then another thing you can do is look through whatever, I mean, LinkedIn would be the sort of go-to here. Look through LinkedIn and look at the people that your connections are connected to and think about whether those people work at companies that could need someone like you and then ask for specific intros to people by name. Uh, I think that, and in my experience, that's far more effective than just saying, hey, can you intro to me to somebody who, whatever. That puts the burden on the person you're asking for the intro. And instead, if you do a little bit more homework and come up with at least a short list and ask for intros to people by name and explain why, that tends to be more effective because you're doing more of the, the legwork. You're not asking those people to go fetch for you. It's funny you bring that up because that's how I tell people to find a job. I've been working on the get a job for programmers, mm -hmm. especially new programmers. And yeah, it's the same thing. It's, all right, well, who do you know at the company you want to work at? Who do you know at, who knows people at the company you work at? Where are those people? Are they in specific forums or email lists? Are they at the meetups locally? And then go be where they are. And that way they will at least, at least have seen your name. They'll know who you are. They'll have some idea what you're about, and you can then meet people there who can introduce you to the people you need to know. Yep. I think it's based on the same principle exactly. So Keith asked, what's the best way to start with customer discovery and road mapping? Are there specific resources? Well, I can tell you, friend of the show, Brennan Dunn, has a, a whole course on road mapping that uh, would, would be worth checking out. I know that, I mean, I think we, I could probably pretty quickly put together some, some links. I know some people have written blog articles about the subject of road mapping. Um, I know we've also done some episodes about it, about that. And, right. Uh, yeah, Brendan was on the show actually talking about it. In fact, the other question that came in was, can you please show me some examples of an email proposal to a client? And yeah, a lot of this comes down to the same thing, right? Asking those good questions, doing that discovery and then putting out a roadmap and proposing this is what we're going to get done and this is how much it's going to cost. Yep. I know uh, Jonathan Stark has sent out a couple great emails to his list about asking those why questions, W-H-Y. And so maybe we could just kind of compile some links to those. Yeah, uh, Curtis yeah. McHale also did one about proposals and he talked about his discovery process. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's great stuff out there, actually. So now that I'm looking at this question, this one's Roz. She actually says, in what order to say stuff or even to say like, hello, I'm a front-end web dev. I'm experienced in doing such a job. Here's my website. I would like to learn more about what you need. So this is kind of the cold outreach. And I guess uh, Keith is after they've expressed interest. 
how do you do that discovery, which is what we were talking about before. But uh, yeah, how, how do you put together your cold emails to get people interested or to find out if they're interested? I mean, I have some thoughts here, but I'm curious what you're thinking is. So I, I work with um, mentoring students a lot on this. They are cold emailing people for the purposes of getting a short 15, 20 minute interview to gather information. So mm-hmm. in a way, it's almost a, <laughs> I mean, I'm of two minds on this. In, in one sense, it's a higher pressure situation because you're asking somebody for their time, their most precious resource, and you don't really have something to give them in exchange. At least when you're writing someone to see if they have a need, there's, you know, the possibility that you'll be able to build something for them. Now, really, when you ask them some, somebody for their time to ask them some questions about their pain, they're often quite grateful to have somebody to talk to. It's like free therapy, in other words. So there is an exchange of value. But the most successful first approach I have seen is a one-sentence email. The subject line is usually the name of the company that you're emailing. And and this, by the way, comes straight from my friend Kai Davis. So he's done a lot more testing of this than I have, and I've just taken what's worked for him and (laughs) and used it uh, in my mentoring program. The one sentence of the email is, are you the right person to talk to about whatever? So if you're looking for work, it's the problem that you would help them solve. Are you the right person to talk to about, you know, resources for your internal software projects? Or are you the right person to talk to about uh, optimizing the sales of your, you know, public facing e-commerce site or whatever, right? And that's the entire email. Now, I mean, you'll have some kind of sign off and and it's good to have your contact info there because that really demonstrates that you're not some scammy operator. That's the first email and it is intentionally short. It feels to a lot of people, it feels kind of rude because they feel like, especially if, like me, if you grew up in the South, <laughs> Southeastern United States, you feel like you kind of need to be friendly and the way you do that is by kind of talking people up and that actually just wastes their time <laughs> when when you're talking about their inbox. So that's why you want to keep it short. And it's really just designed to start a conversation and point you in the right direction. So that's one way to get that started. So the other thing that I will add, and and I was kind of going to go in a completely different direction on this, is that, so if you're reaching out to somebody, take 5, 10, 15 minutes and actually see what you can find out about them. Mm. So go look them up on LinkedIn. Go look them up on Google. Go see what's on their GitHub profile. Go see what they're tweeting about. Go find out what, what else there is about them that you can find out. And that way, you can pretty quickly, in a lot of cases, figure out this isn't the person I need to talk to. Or if it is the person I need to talk to, then it's, okay, they have this position in this company and they've been trying to solve these particular types of problems. So then you can come in with prior knowledge and you can ask the right questions and say the right things and, and uh, you know hit their interests in the right way and so if you are going to send them a little bit longer note that says, hi, I noticed from your blog post that you were struggling with this particular problem, or I was talking to so-and-so who works at your company because you figured out that you know somebody there, and we, we were discussing this particular issue, and I realized that I have a solution that would solve it, and so they put me in touch. You know, you can get that warm introduction. You can do all of those types of things because you've done that homework you figured out who these people are, you figured out what makes them tick, and then you can make it work. The other thing is, is that if you find out some of the personal things, so let's say they have a favorite sports team or something, I mean, you know, 
Philip was saying, don't write a big long email, you know, hey, how's it going? You know, I know you're a terrific person stuff, but you can say, you know, I watched the BYU game last night and dang, they lost again, you know, or can you believe that call? You know, oh, by the way, you know, and that way, you know, you can just kind of put out there that you, you're a person too, you have something in common, you can make that connection, or you can save that up for when you actually get a chance to talk to them. But whatever the case, yeah, I found that just a little bit of upfront research puts you in a position where you can actually directly and specifically talk about the issues you know they have, and then you can explore your way into the other things that you can do for them. Yeah, I actually agree with that. It's because that can be very successful too. That sort of, I guess the thing we're implicitly saying avoid doing is just kind of uh, going in blind. In any case, you benefit from doing research. I'm constantly recommending the book Selling to Big Companies by Jill Conrath. And that's got like kind of more similar to Chuck's approach, tells you how to do some of that research. and helps you understand how informed you really need to be <laughs> before you go in to sort of approach a company cold. So I feel like that approach is a little better, a little more suited to kind of a low volume, high quality approach. And my approach mm -hmm. is more suited to like a high volume, I don't want to say low quality, but lower response rate approach. And either one can work. I mean, your approach is effectively what I do for sponsors, right? Are you the right person to talk to about sponsoring a podcast? I mean, that's effectively what I send people. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I shouldn't really call it my approach, but the approach I'm talking about, which is advocated by a number of people, really fits well where you either have a larger list you're going through or you, you kind of have something where you're, a, it's a standardized thing you're selling, which is kind of like what your podcast sponsorship is, Chuck. Mm -hmm. And yep. And I think it works well in that case. On the other hand, if you if you can put together a list of 10 or 20 clients where you're like, these are the dream clients. These are, I know for sure these are the perfect clients. Then I think a much higher touch approach is is probably the right approach to take because, you know, once you get through that list of 20, you're, you're kind of done. So I think you want to make everyone count. And that's where that extra research can can definitely pay off. Yep. One other thing I want to say about this email is, or this particular question, I'm pasting them into the chat, is the example email is, hello, I'm a front-end dev. I'm experienced in doing such a job. Here's my website. I would like to learn more about what you need. There's a lot of I, I, I in there, and it's much more effective to talk about you, you, you. I mean, even the the one-liner is a, are you the right person to talk about this? Yeah. And it focuses on, you know, are you the person I can help? What do you need? Not, you know... I can help you. I can solve your problem. Anyway, it comes off a whole lot better. If there's if there's one key, that's it. You've really put your finger on it. That's it. It's how can you get into their world and live in their world and write them an email that they would be like, well, yes, actually, could we get on the phone and talk about that? And it's hard to do. I mean, as a beginning freelancer, that was very difficult for me to do. And it's still, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but that's that's absolutely the key to making any kind of coldy outreach work is, I mean, what email would they be so happy to get that they would willingly get on the phone or, or respond to your email? All right. Keith mentioned getting past gatekeepers, which is kind of a different animal from what we've been talking about here. 
I, w- I want to say you got to read Selling to Big Companies because it it uh, <laughs> it has a lot of advice about that. So I'm really just kind of ripping from that book when I say that you're not trying to get past gatekeepers because the gatekeepers in most cases are actually very skilled at understanding what will benefit their boss or the person or the gate that they're guarding. And they understand what creates value for the company often a lot better than almost anybody else in the company does. And so it's not like you're trying to maneuver past them. And I'm not saying that's what you were saying, Keith, but one interpretation of that is how can I circumvent them? And uh, what I love about selling to big companies is that, that Jill Conrath presents things more from a perspective of how can you make them your ally? Really what you have to do is be able to make a case for value that makes sense to the gatekeeper. And then the gatekeeper is going to like happily pass that on to the person whose time they're protecting or attention they're protecting because, because it's a win. It creates value. They're doing their job and they're actually making their boss uh, better off. They're improving the condition of their boss. So I, I just, Again, not that that's what you were saying, Keith, but I want to warn people against that perspective of like, how can I trick the gatekeeper into letting me through? Well, you're just going to create two enemies if you do that. <laughs> you know, the, the person you tricked and the person you wasted the t- their time. So it's really got to be, you've got to think about how you can create value for somebody and, uh, and how you can work with the gatekeeper to sort of demonstrate that value very quickly so that they kind of get on your team and, and help you out. Yeah, I was going to say, you either have to win them over or you have to find another way in. You know, if you're going to try and trick the gatekeeper, like Philip said, it's just, it's not going to work out well for you. But if you can make them an asset so that they're telling you what their boss is going to want to see or hear or know or have solved, then they're an asset to you. And once you can articulate to them, as Philip said, that you you can give them that value, then you're there. And then they're on your team because it, it works. The other way in that I've seen is that if you know somebody who knows them, then again, you have to make sure that you understand what those needs are so you're not going in. And as Philip said, once again, you're not wasting their time. But yeah, I've gotten past gatekeepers because I didn't know there was a gatekeeper. I just knew one of their buddies they go golfing with or something. And so, you know, I, I found out from their buddy what they needed. And then I made the pitch to their buddy in two minutes and then made the pitch to them in 10 minutes. And that's what it wound up getting me the job. Another great thing about selling to big companies, I'm such a fan of this book. Jill Conrad talks about how you can actually benefit from a more of a two-step approach where step one is, you don't plan to talk to the person beyond the gatekeeper. You're just talking to the gatekeeper and trying to get information that can help you refine your approach and and make it more uh, targeted. And then with the gatekeeper's help, you come back and say, Hey, you know, remember blah, blah, blah. And then you kind of, then you actually are going for the goal of being put in contact with the decision maker. Yep. Uh, Keith says timing often works. See sweeters go home at 5 p.m. I don't know if that means you wait in the lobby and then ambush them or, you know, if you go up and talk to the gatekeeper after their boss has gone home and isn't looking over their shoulder and maybe get a little bit of time. Or vice but, versa. Sometimes uh, the boss works longer and the gatekeeper yeah. gets to go home at 5 p.m. And if you, if that's the case, then 
you can sometimes get through directly when the gatekeeper's not there. Yep. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times if you can get FaceTime and you know you have the value that they want, yeah, then you're in. So it's just a matter of figuring that out. The last question that came in was, I've been maintaining a client's app for a while now, getting a steady retainer for it. They are looking to expand abroad and want me to handle the tech and marketing side of that expansion too. Looking at the business, it has good potential. Would accepting profit share as a retainer be be a good idea in this case? Well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of a reductionist perspective, but that kind of makes you a professional investor. Yeah. Maybe you have a, you know, great track record at that. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you have some insight into the company, which is one thing investors want. So that's great. But at the end of the day, you're sort of becoming an investor. And I feel like people ask that question out of a good place, but also sometimes out of a sense of fear, like, well, like they kind of don't believe in themselves. So they don't believe that they can just charge for their services. Uh, Or there are cases, of course, where it's difficult to set a fair price or assess the value. And those are cases where you're kind of tempted to take the easy way out of just taking a cut of the profits, which I'm sure works out spectacularly well sometimes. I just, I don't have a lot of friends who pay their mortgage with, uh, you know, profit sharing on on stuff they put sweat equity into. So I I would be very hesitant to do that. And Chuck, why don't you take over with uh, with the rest of this rant? (laughs) So I have feelings on the profit share angle. How do I say this nicely? Every time I've had that pitch to me, I've been pretty certain that I've been, somebody's trying to take advantage of me or they think they have a million dollar idea and they're just blind to all of the risk that's involved. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of that kind of arrangement, especially since the kinds of arrangements that I really get into are the kinds that I can control, right? So it's, I will get you this outcome and then you will pay me my fee or actually the other way around you will pay me my fee and then I will give you that outcome. And that way it's, it's all up to me. You know, at the end of the day, I have the list of things that I said will happen and I make those things happen. And then you agreed that it was worth the value of the money that you gave to me and that works out. And by doing some kind of profit share in a company that I don't actually own or control, I, I just don't get comfortable with that. I mean, if it were an absolute slam dunk, like if I could see the future, or at least I'm looking at this company and I'm going, you know what, this is Facebook all over again. And it's really starting to, you know, have that exponential growth and they're doing all the right stuff. And, you know, it, it seems like it's an absolute no brainer slam dunk. Then maybe, but even then, I mean, I'd, I'd really just be tempted to continue to work with them based on the value that they're going to get from my work. So, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. The whole idea of profit sharing, I mean, profit sharing with uh, employees, that's a different animal. But profit sharing as your retainer fee, just it, it just doesn't sit right with me at all. There's you know, probably some other- cases where it might make sense, like kind of a blended uh, ca- you know, cash compensation plus. Yeah, but you'd have to know a whole lot more about the situation than we do, I think. That's true. I mean, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is in some cases I might be open to profit sharing as a bonus for like awesome mm-hmm. above and beyond performance. But 
you'll get paid this, you know, this cash baseline no matter what. Like something like that could make sense yeah. because that's more, that's a little bit more of a, okay, I, I know that I'm going to be paid, but mm-hmm. if, if I get extraordinary results, I get an extraordinary return. And that's kind of like being that's a salesman fair. with a salary plus commission. And I think that that's a situation I might be more open to the idea of profit That's sharing. true. I mean, if your outcome is 3x the business, then yeah, you take a profit share if you 5x the business. And, you know, if it's like an hour, a week of work, <laughs> and you don't really care, then the risk to you is minimal. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of sort of educations and extenuating circumstances. But generally, I, I, think, I think we all have this kind of reflex of when someone says take profit in lieu of payment, we're like, we're kind of thinking, well, what if that profit never materializes? You've just lost money. Uh, but again, I yeah. think there's some cases where maybe it might make sense, but those are definitely the minority of cases where people bring well, my that brother, up. My brother was in a startup and he was kind of their lead sales guy. So he had a whole bunch of deals all completely lined up. The companies were ready to sign them. They were kind of middle, large-sized companies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're on the larger end of companies, they're, but they're not like Fortune 500 mm-hmm. companies. Uh, they're kind of a tier or two down from there. And he had them all lined up, uh, would have paid all the bills for the business, would have given them the case studies they needed to go after bigger fish. And the CEO came in, who was his business partner, uh, majority shareholder, so he could basically do what he wanted. He came in and decided that he wanted more money out of those companies and ruined all three deals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my brother has equity in the company. He has, you know, everything would have worked out and lined up and they could have, you know, gone from, uh, you know, we need more investment to actually having cash to move ahead with and everything died. And he, you know, he just, he wasn't in control of that situation. And it's things like that, that just make me go, you know what? I I think I know who these people are. I think I know what they're about. I think we're aligned on our goals. And then you find out that they're not. That's why I'm raising the flag of warning. But yeah, I mean, the situations that you outlined where you know you're going to get value for value on your your time or effort, you know, and and with the reduced risk, you know, I think that really just comes down to what you're comfortable with. Yeah. And business can be risky in in surprising ways sometimes. (laughs) Yep. The other thing to keep in mind is that if they want you to handle the tech and marketing on their expansion of their app, then make sure that you are getting commensurate compensation for that. That it doesn't just get rolled into the, you know, the agreement you already have. If it's more work, then you should get paid more for it. And I think that generally goes without saying, but sometimes we're just like, oh yeah, I can do that too. And then we don't understand that they're saying, can you do that too for what we're paying you? So yeah, just, just make sure you're very clear on what the details are on that expansion. All right. Well, those are all the questions we have. Keith, do you have any other questions we can answer? I'm going to ask Philip what he's been working on. And then if you have any questions come in, we'll answer those. And then I'll talk about my stuff and then we'll wrap up. <laughs> I've got a three by five card here taped to my display that has my like three big priorities. It's really interesting that I've been able to reduce it down to that. So I, I rewrote the positioning crash course. So that's a thing that that's a, free email crash course that uh, you can sign up for at positioningcrashcourse.com. Longtime listeners of the show 
are going, yeah, 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 we know, because <laughs> I mentioned it from time <laughs> to time. And it had uh, a couple things that happened. Uh, I had revi- significantly revised the positioning manual and sort of reframed how I talk about positioning, hopefully to be more helpful to people and be more appropriate for provide a more appropriate guidance based on where their business is in terms of its maturity. And the crash course, which really is two things, it's, you know, it's trying to educate people, but really it's trying to get people to realize that they're learning about something that's better learned through a book and essentially sell them on the book. The position crash course never changed with that update to the book. So I needed to update it anyway. So I, I rewrote the position crash course that really took a fair bit of uh, my time last month in uh, September. A related project is to rewrite the sales page for the positioning manual, which is not like my primary income source, but it is, it's sort of, it's a big part of my business. And again, I updated the book dramatically and the sales page never really changed that much. So I'm working on that. That has turned out to be a bigger project. Like many of these things has turned out to be a bigger project than I thought. And then the third thing that I'm working on uh, high level is I'm trying to build a, a course that would be sort of an alternative to the positioning manual. But the course is provides more guidance and more structure and more accountability. And it would be a more cost effective option to uh, what I'm now calling my positioning accelerator program, which is a sort of monthly mentoring thing that I do. So the new positioning online course is only in the planning stages right now. It's, it's a ways out. I just got an email. I'm on Paul Jarvis's list. Got an email from him last Sunday. And he laid out his approach for validating an online course idea. And the approach is to do a workshop version of the course, which doesn't entail building out all the course materials. You would build a slide deck. You'd, you know, sell access to the workshop and it would be like an online workshop instead of the course. And you do that as a sort of pre-validation step. I am going to do that. I think I've already gotten help with designing this course because I want it to be good. I see so many courses that are kind of like a copy paste from a book with some additional, I don't know, video content or something. And I guess there's value in that, but really my, my goal for this course is for it to be a really valid alternative to mentoring and to have the structure that it needs to help more people be successful. People who can't just read a book and implement on their own, which is a lot of us. So Janelle Allen, she helped me uh, do some research and planning to come up with a, what she calls a course map for the course. And that's awesome. And I think what I'm going to do is turn that into this sort of intermediate thing of an online workshop, run that, get some feedback, and then build the course. So that's the long answer, Chuck. That's what I've been up to. It's all kind of building products or product-like things for my business. Um, I've been able to take a break from client work for a while, which has been great because it's really let me start to build out some of these revenue assets that I think are going to be very good for my business in the long term. I mean, there's a bunch of ticky tacky other stuff, but those are the big, the big three. What about you? So, uh, I'll start with the conferences. So I've been scrambling to get the conferences together through the end of the year. Rails Remote Conf actually starts tomorrow. 
but I did manage to get all of the speaker spots filled, even though it was kind of last minute. I actually hired somebody to help me with that. And she utterly failed to communicate with people for two weeks. And so that's why it was all last minute stuff. But yeah, so I'm working on that. I'm finalizing the speaker list for React Remote Conf. And then I'm doing DevOps and NoSQL. And then I was looking at next year for the conferences because I'm tr starting to plan out, you know, some of the things that I want to do next year. And uh, I've decided that I've, I've done uh, JS Remote Conf every January. And I've decided that I'm not going to just continue to scramble and try and get people in. So I'm going to do JS Remote Conf in March and Freelance Remote Conf in April and push the conferences back a bit. There are a couple of conferences I tried to do this last year that I'm not going to do this year just because nobody signed up for them. And then I think I have a pretty good idea of how to do the outreach on that. So I'm starting to pull that stuff together. And then I'm trying to make sure that everything is buttoned up neatly for the podcast. And that's my main focus through the end of the year is just to get that dealt with and handled so that things run pretty much smoothly and as automatically as I can for that stuff. So right now, currently, if somebody gets scheduled for the podcast, they get an email that tells them where to get the podcast guest instructions. It also tells them where to start collaborating with us before the episode. And what that does for us is then we have a Google Doc that we can hand off to people for show notes. And we can also um, make sure that we know what questions and what narrative we want on the podcast. And we can, you know, suss out stories that they can tell and stories that we can tell and figure out what all of that stuff is so that we can put together maybe a little bit more uh, cohesive show. So it emails them, it emails the panels. But then all of the social media stuff at the end, I've got some things going on there that I want to be able to email the guest afterward and say, hey, thanks for coming on. It's released now. And here's a, here's a link basically to a page that you can use to share that episode out to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and whatever else. And so just get all that together so that we can get more people in the door. And then I'm also working on the Get a Coder Job book which for freelancers is probably not that interesting, so I'm not going to spend that much time on it. But it's focused for new people in programming, finding a job. I just got asked that question about 100, 150 times. And so I decided, hey, <laughs> if there are enough people out there that have the question, there's probably a, a book that needs to be written for them. So pulling that together and making that happen. And uh, yeah, I haven't done client work really for about a year now that I think about it. You know, so just that that's the other part of getting the podcasts all buttoned up is making sure that everything happens for sponsorships when it needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm still figuring some of that out, but for the most part, it, it runs rather smoothly. So yeah, so that's, that's what I'm working on. Lots of automation stuff and then just getting processes and systems and hiring people and things like that. And, Sounds uh, like a I, real company over there. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate having to let people go. I did that last week, but it, you know, it created a bunch of extra work for me. They have to go scramble at the last minute to get speakers lined up because that communication didn't happen. And uh, you, every time do, I asked... Uh, sorry to interrupt. Do you do the little test project thing with new people? I'm curious. Uh, you know what I'm talking um, about? Like kind of a, I'm going to start doing that. I was trying to figure out how to do a test project for that kind of thing, like emailing people. And I just don't... I don't know exactly how to do that. So I think I'm going to give people test projects around other stuff, like just to put together a plan. For social media or put together a plan for 
reaching out to people, you know, have them write test emails and stuff like that. Yeah. And that way I can hopefully at least, you know, I, I can feel good about what's going on there. But yeah, yeah I hired a, I hired a part-time employee. Technically she was a contractor. Huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, somehow this was right at my fingertips. It, uh, Kai, Kai Davis wrote this half somewhere, somewhere between a blog post and a procedure like that. You can just kind of copy paste. Kai and is really good at procedures. He boy is in the, and this procedure is how to hire an, a part-time employee. I think it would work just fine also for, you know, a freelancer, a part-time contractor. And it, it, it sort of is based on that idea of having them do a test project so that they can, um, give you an actual demonstration of their ability to execute before it gets to that point where you're uh, wishing you'd never hired him in the first place, probably. Yeah. I also read a book called uh, who, and it's a pretty involved process, but it, it basically tells you how to set things up so that you can hire people. So you're asking the right questions. So you're getting all the information you need before you run through. This also looks a little bit like what John Sanmez and uh, Josh Earl do at mm -hmm. simple programmer. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily, well, they do, but they go on Upwork and they write the job ad. Mm -hmm. And then they disqualify people based on whatever they disqualify them on. But essentially what they do is they hire the 10 most promising people mm -hmm. and they essentially give them a test project. But the test project is more or less the actual job they're going to be doing. Got it. So, so they hired a video editor. And what they did is they had the same video edited by 10 different people mm -hmm. for like, you know. 20, 30, 40 bucks a pop. Right. And then they picked the one that did the best job, you know, and things like that. My, what, my other issue, if you listen to entreprogrammers at entreprogrammers.com, you'll hear a lot more about this. The nice. other issue was, was that she wasn't communicating with me. And so I didn't actually know where things were at. And I kept asking and bugging and bugging and asking. And finally, I was just like, you know what? I have to have somebody who is not going to give me an anxiety attack over whether or not things are happening. In other words, they need to just be telling me, hi, this is what I did. <laughs> yep. And if I have to ask and ask and beg, I'm not working for you and I'm not your mom. So yeah. I'm not going to keep you. And I, I like this person. I thought they were, you know, a terrific person, but yeah, it just mm. wasn't what I needed. So yeah. anyway, but yeah, I'll have to look this over. But yeah, the thing that I've been doing is, yeah, I'm just looking for another part-time contractor who can pick up some of this work. And I have somebody in Philippines that does a good job. It's just that usually I have to, I have to train him and then correct him about three or four times. And then, but after that, then he does the job, right? Like no problem. So he's, nice. he's definitely worth keeping around, but yeah, I keep thinking that it, it'd be nice to have, cause it's hard to check in cause of the time difference. So it'd mm -hmm. be nice to have somebody on this end who can do some of the, the more critical stuff that I can actually just, you know, grab onto and talk to every week. So, yeah, takes time to delegate stuff no matter what. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'll figure some of this stuff out, but yeah, I'm probably going to be hiring somebody again here within the next few months. And then just, I just, I just need somebody that will get in and do the stuff and yeah, that I don't have to really worry about. So anyway, so that's kind of where I've been at. Um, a lot of focus on just, automating and delegating stuff so that I don't have to worry about it as much. Very cool. I guess we should do some picks. Do you have some picks? I am going to <laughs> repick the Jill Conrath book. It's just so good. I mean, it's this combination nice. of sort of helping you understand 
the world of the people you're trying to to get in touch with, which is, I think, the most important thing overall, but also has some very specific tactical stuff you can do. So it's a book called Selling to Big Companies by Jill Conrath. People are beginning to think I get a cut of the sales or something. I don't. <laughs> I just think it's great. <laughs> and um, it just, you know, easily read and no fluff kind of thing. So that's one pick. And then uh, I'll pick that article that Kai wrote about how to hire a part-time employee. I've seen that work for several people is why I'm so such a big fan of it is I've seen that exact process yeah. just be sort of copy paste applied by uh, at least two people and it's worked great for them. So it's, it's a good, really good starting point. Uh, and I think the critical differentiator there is that it involves a live paid, I mean, it's a practice project, but still it's like a live project. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as long as it's paid, I mean, yeah. that's the thing is I, yep. I want them to get paid if they're doing something for me, but yeah. Yep. And it is, I mean, you just kind of scale it to the point that you can afford it. And it just seems like there's no substitute for seeing a potential employee do the thing they're going to do for you in a real situation and then include that in your hiring decision. I, I mean, that's why so many jobs have like a 33 day, three month trial period, right? Same reason it's, um, yeah. it's just, with, with when you're hiring a subcontractor or a freelancer, you've got to approach it a little differently. But anyway, those are my picks yep. for this week. I'll uh, I'll link up to both of those. Uh, I guess I'll drop that in Skype so we have that for the show notes. Nice. I've got just one pick this time, and I think I might have picked it last week. I don't remember. But uh, I've been reading this book called The 12-Week Year, and the idea is is that a lot of people do annual planning and a year is just too long to kind of keep that uh, vision and idea in mind. And so what winds up happening is people get a little bit behind in January. And they go, oh, well, like I still have 11 months before I've got to finish up my year stuff. Then they get to like March and they're like, yeah, I'm a little further behind, but, it, you know, I still have nine months. And then September, October, November hits and they go, oh, crap. I've got two months to get my stuff done. And then they wind up getting it done in the last two months. And if they had you know, if they had worked like that or worked toward getting those goals during the first few months, then they would have gotten way more work done. And so what they advocate is instead of doing annual planning, you do uh, 12-week planning. And then your monthly planning is essentially planning out those 12 weeks. And then your weekly planning is planning out the five days during the week that you work. So you sit down and you figure out what three or four things you want to get done over those 12 weeks. And then you plan it out. So week one, you've got to do this. And week two, you've got to do this. And week three, you've got to do this. And these are the things that you have to do every week. And these are the things that you have to do over this amount of time. And yeah, anyway, it, it's really an interesting approach. I actually like the book so much that after I finished listening to it on Audible, I actually closed the book, opened it up and started it again. So, oh. <laughs> so I am, I am really committed to that. Um, if I start 12 weeks with this week, it actually works out that uh, the end of the 12 weeks is December 31st. Hmm. So that, that kind of worked out neatly. And then, yeah, I can start again beginning of next year. So I'm digging in and I am figuring out what my goals are for these 12 weeks. And then we'll figure it out from there. I'm pretty sure that one of them is going to be to find and onboard a new part-time person. And I, another one for the business is just next year, I would like to get completely out of debt except for the house 
just having all of that stuff off my plate financially would put me in a position where I can do more interesting things with the podcasts and everything else. And so I'm, I'm kind of looking at what I need to set up this year in order to get there. And then next year it's going to be okay. So the first quarter it's going to be pay off these things and, you know, stuff like that. And then, um, just one or two other goals around my family and, you know, other personal stuff. So nice. one of them is probably going to be related to losing weight, but yeah, I haven't I think, quite figured out what those are. Yeah. I thought it was just me with the, like uh, planning a whole year just seemed like crazy way too much time. I, I thought it was just me. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear it's other people work better yeah. with shorter time frames. And, and they've got a whole system for this. Nice. For figuring out your vision and figuring out, okay, that's my vision now, How, you know, what do I have to do these three months in order to get there and all of that stuff. So it's definitely cool. worth a read. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can end the call. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.